All right, guys, so we'll begin kind of the second half of America and the World, or kind of the lecture slash, you know, talk discussion on World War II. Again, last time, right, we went over those key terms, ranging from the Kellogg-Briand Pact all the way to the top secret project to build the atomic weapon, right, with the Manhattan Project. We talked a bit about uh, the kind of, you know, dominant kind of view of sort of isolationism on the part of the U.S., right, wanting to avoid international conflict and international sort of drama. And also, you know, all those countries, right, wanting to focus on their own business, on their own uh, issues, especially those economic ones, right, that had uh, arisen from the Great Depression and unemployment. You saw the video on the rise of dictators, right, like Mussolini and, of course, Adolf Hitler of Germany as well. Um, but again, um, you know, after September 1939, right, with the German invasion of Poland, the war is on now. England and France have declared it. And then in the, you know, time period following that, we have the dominoes beginning to fall really quickly with uh, eventually the Nazis expanding all the way to Scandinavia and overtaking France relatively quickly. Uh, the U.S. increasing trade and then straight up just almost giving supplies or loaning supplies to the Soviets as well as the British. And then, of course, the escalating situation uh, in the Far East with the Japanese Empire. And again, uh, anybody remember what I mentioned about the Japanese, right? And what's going on, especially after 1900? I think I talked about how they industrialized like crazy, right? So very, very fast. But the Japanese just kind of keep on expanding their territory, right? And especially in the late 1930s when they go to coastal China, that's kind of one of the sort of big uh, moments for the U.S.-Japanese relationship. And it continuously kind of gets worse from there eventually ending with the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, right, in December of 1941, and then the U.S. declaring war uh, the following day, right, December 7th, December 8th, the U.S. declaring war and joining the effort in World War II. Does anybody have any questions on last time or unclear about something? I'd be happy to clear anything up if I can. Think you're okay? Alrighty. Sorry, guys, I'm a little bit, uh, just sinus issues. All right, guys, so turning the tide, uh, we, I think we alluded or at least had begun a little bit here with the partnership. So I just want to make it clear, right, the kind of sort of a, a team sort of, right, or factions of World War II, just like in World War I, we had the Allies and the Central Powers. So we still have the Allies here, and largely a lot of these are some of the same countries. Um, you know, France and England are kind of like the, the core ones initially. Again, the difference here, right, France is defeated relatively quickly or soon after they declare war on Germany. So eventually, because of Hitler and the German forces attacking into the Soviet Union, the Soviet joins an alliance with the UK or the British. And then, of course, after Pearl Harbor, and again, would have likely still happened anyway, the United States joins the Allied effort as well. So again, those will be the primary allies, the United States, uh, England or the UK, and the Soviet Union. Again, on the other side, right, we have the Germans, uh, the Japanese, as well as the Italians. And the Italians, almost similar to kind of the, maybe the French situation or the France situation, are, you know, rather defeated relatively quickly into the war. But because of German, uh, you know, support and defenses, their territories kind of hold, held out, holds out a bit longer uh, until eventually the Allies will kind of storm through there, right, and take over those locations. Uh, one thing I wanted to kind of say about those two factions or kind of two uh, teams sort of in World War II is they're very different. Like one of the key kind of cogs or parts of the war is the really close relationship between the British and the Americans via trade, via even coordinating their attacks, first here in North Africa, then eventually up the boot of Italy, and then eventually the D-Day invasion here on the coast of France. And, um, you know, this is really different when compared to the Axis powers, right, of Germany and Japan, which lasts, you know, for the most part, the duration of the war. 
you know, in, in their view, I mean, there was some coordination and stuff like that, but it was almost like, you know, you take, you know, the idea was the Nazis will hopefully dominate in the view of, of course, the Axis powers, not me, that the Nazis will, you know, take over and kind of dominate the European sort of area. And then, of course, the Japanese are building their, you know, vast uh, Asian empire over here in the Pacific. So a lot less kind of cooperative. So that key kind of teamwork, uh, cooperation between the British and the Americans, one of the stark differences between the both sides. Now, there's also some trouble that comes about from this. Because of this close relationship via trade and other things, the Soviet Union feels a bit alienated in the relationship. Uh, meaning that, you know, in a way, it's kind of like, I don't know, brothers and sisters, right? Like maybe two of them are really close siblings and the other, you know, he's, feels a little bit left out, stuff like that. Now, part of this does not even begin in World War II. Part of it is from way back when. So if you remember, right, in the outcome around 1917, uh, the Russia changes, right? And it becomes the Soviet Union. We have the Communist Revolution. Well, um, during that time, the U.S. and uh, England, but probably a little bit more so the U.S., refused to recognize the Soviet Union, the new communist government, as the legitimate government of Russia. And it wasn't until 1933, right, over a decade later after the revolution had ended, that the U.S. did so. And so, like, some of these hard feelings, some of these differences in ideologies and philosophies are, you know, kind of create a very uneasy alliance. Like, again, we are an alliance because we're, you know, both after and trying to end the, the Nazi regime and the occupation and conquest of Europe. But, you know, these are going to be some of the issues that linger and, and kind of cause the Cold War later on, right, with uh, so much uh, Soviet expansion later on and also the rising influence of the U.S. and the U.S. economy, for sure. All right, uh, so for halting the German Blitz, and I'll come back uh, here in a little bit and go through the detailed kind of uh, visual or maps that show the campaign. But one thing to realize overall for German forces is you know, probably seven, maybe even eight out of 10 German troops are involved in the Eastern theater here of Europe. Meaning that, you know, basically what happened with the Soviets and the Germans is in 1939, they had come to an agreement known as the, the uh, German-Soviet Non-Aggression Pact where they decided both to retake Poland and kind of divide it. You know, Soviets would get the uh, eastern half and the Germans would get the western half. And uh, you know, Germany does not hold to this. Eventually they invade and they fight their way through Eastern Europe and into Soviet-controlled territory. So once that happens, this begins a brutal fight uh, to the death between a very, very large German army and a massive uh, Soviet force as well. And uh, largely the turning point in, uh, for much of the European theater is considered to take place around this location here at a place called Stalingrad. In, uh, uh, this would be, I think, uh, early 1943 when that uh, battle finally concludes. But to give you an idea of just the scale and stuff, you know, millions of troops involved, I think it still holds a lot of the records as far as like planes involved in a single battle and takes place over basically six months, over a million casualties. It's just hard to imagine kind of that type of you know, warfare and all that going on. And once the Soviets are victorious at that Battle of Stalingrad, it's not like it'll be easy. It'll still be extremely difficult. But the Nazis are kind of like no longer able to push further into Soviet territory. So the Soviets, with American aid and, of course, with their own wherewithal, which is kind of building throughout all this, begin slowly pushing the German forces back towards their homeland. And in a bit, when I talk a bit more detail about what's going on with the U.S. and the British it also happens here on the Western Front after D-Day, and basically both sides kind of converge from 
uh, you know, to try to reach the German heartland and to reach Berlin. And of course, that will culminate in April 1945. So that's kind of how the war is won. But again, Stalingrad, a really key, considered a turning point for the European theater and the battle versus the, uh, the Nazi regime. Uh, some other things early on when the U.S. joins, again, we kind of uh, we can work very closely with the British. Uh, we also, like, there was a big thing where the initial discussions amongst the Allies were, who do we focus on first? Do we focus on which Axis power, the Japanese, the Italians, the Germans? And uh, the agreement is pretty quickly made that the Germans kind of deserve the priority because, um, you know, the idea is if you liberate a lot of these European nations, then they could maybe aid you in the war effort as well. So the idea is, again, deal with the German threat first as quickly as possible and then revert to the Japanese situation in the Pacific. Any questions, guys, so far regarding this stuff? Think you're okay? All right. All right, guys, as far as the Japanese situation, something, and I'm going to go back to the map here, uh, showing that uh, kind of vast empire, right, circa about 1942 or so. And the one thing that sometimes is lost with the Pearl Harbor stuff, and it makes sense why, of course, Pearl Harbor is such an important event and one with such great impact. And again, Pearl Harbor would just be off the map right here. But uh, in the first six months after Pearl Harbor, the Japanese, like Pearl Harbor in a way, was a part of a wave of attacks that secured a lot of the southern portion of the Pacific here, from the Philippines all the way through Guadalcanal and the Solomon Islands. And, uh, you know, here what the the Japanese have basically done is secured vast oil reserves, I believe I mentioned that last time, and also create almost like a bubble for themselves, right? That, hey, this is our kind of territory, and, you know, we are now kind of, you know, the imperial power, right, in this part of the world. And, as you know, a lot of stuff has been made, like, you know, as far as Pearl Harbor and the aftermath of that, because there was a lot of pervasive and paranoia about the uh, U.S. perhaps being attacked in places like California and all that stuff. You know, the reality of it is, is probably the Japanese goal was to not necessarily, you know, go toe to toe with the Americans. That's not what was the goal. The goal was to kind of like deter the Americans from reacting quickly by, you know, crippling those forces at Pearl Harbor. Uh, and of course, it's just, you know, kind of underestimated, the Japanese kind of underestimated the ability of the Americans to kind of bounce back quickly from that is ultimately going to lead to uh, that failing. Um, so again, this is kind of what that looks like before the U.S. launches their sort of counterattack and begins kind of making uh, gains into these territories in the Pacific. All right, guys, switch gears for a few minutes and talk about the U.S. home front. So when we talk about a home front in a war effort, it's basically how the war is affecting home society, right? American society in general. So for the first part, the arsenal of democracy is a very kind of popular term throughout World War II and in the, in the kind of historiography of it or the study of it. Meaning that, you know, again, even before we, we kind of got involved in the war, the U.S. was providing tons of supplies to the Allied forces. And not only the Allies, but, you know, China, which is sometimes also kind of thrown in with the Allies, were fighting the Japanese. There was a lot of aid given as well to Chinese nationalists that were fighting Japanese occupation. And the U.S. is in a prime position to do this because, um, you know, again, you know, high unemployment and all that. Well, now demand for farm goods is up. Demand for industrial goods is up. So, you know, in a way, this is kind of dealing with, um, you know, uh, providing the fuel for this massive war, right, on a global scale and providing for an end to, you know, the depression, basically. So this, the economy of the U.S. is, is basically kind of the, one of the biggest factors in the war overall, and it was kind of feeding the whole war machine, so to speak. So unemployment will go way, way down. Uh, minorities will have more job opportunities than ever before. Women, millions and millions, will join the workplace. And again, why is all this happening? 
Well, Dave, you think about like mobilization, right? Something like 15, 16 million people are now in the U.S. military. So what does that leave here at home, right? A whole lot of jobs to be had and a whole lot of opportunities. So African-Americans, right, finding more opportunities in the bigger cities. Um, uh, Hispanics, Mexican-Americans, for instance, an agreement is made between the Mexican government and the American government about a work program. It was pretty famously called the Bracero Programs. Uh, program and there's multiple iterations of it but the idea was mexican citizens can get kind of special permission to work in the u.s in these high need industries and things like that because of the lack of workers and stuff so that's going to have other byproducts right of uh, kind of bringing uh, different cultures together and cities will get a little bit more diverse uh, people are getting steady pay you know all those things uh, we all see massive rationing that's kind of kind of showed here a little bit so anybody know what rationing means? Like if I say I'm rationing money or I'm rationing gas, what does that mean I'm trying to do? I should be rationing gas right now because it's getting a little bit pricey. Anyone know? If I'm rationing gas, rationing money, rationing, I don't know what else I can ration. What are you doing? Are you spending, saving? What are you doing? Saving? Yeah. And so, you know, throughout society, there's this massive kind of propaganda ad campaign to push that, to save stuff from fats, it sounds weird, but oil, butter, to uh, proteins, meats, canned goods, right, because of how long they last and all that. And the idea was to, hey, let's save all this stuff so we have more and more for the war effort. And here in this little, you know, uh, kind of primary source ad here, you can see here, right, anybody, again, says, when you ride alone, you ride with Hitler. Right, join a car sharing club today. So why do they? Why does the government care if you ride or join a car sharing club? I don't know if y'all ever heard of carpooling or something like that. Anybody know? What are you saving if you ride, take a ride, or join and ride with someone? Gas. Yeah, yeah. So. You know, again, it's almost trying to shame kind of like those, right? Like, hey, if you're driving by yourself, you know, that seems like awfully uh, wasteful, right? Of some of a key resource and things like that. So really, really powerful stuff. I don't know if y'all ever, have y'all ever seen Rosie the Riveter? Anybody know who Rosie the Riveter is? One of the most famous kind of icons or it's weird. just kind of like a mascot or an ad piece. But same thing, trying to promote women back to work, right? And uh, joining the workforce, joining the manufacturing jobs. And, uh, you know, these are big parts of kind of the home front in American society in general. All right, guys, in politics overall, so you know that FDR is still the president, right? And, of course, in this time, he wins his fourth election for president in 1944. Now, what's important about this one, and it uh, comes to light a little bit more, has more bearing, is his choice for vice president. And I believe he changed, I think, at least two times, maybe three uh, during his terms as president. But uh, in, for the run in 1944, he's going to choose a, a fairly kind of centrist, conservative Democrat from Missouri, a guy named Harry Truman. And this is important because FDR does win the election, right, of 44, but he only lives till April of that next year. You know, basically that same month that the war ends against the Nazis or against the Germans, he passes away. So we still have, you know, after that, there's still... What is it, uh, you know, five months, almost half a year of still fighting with Japan going on. And, of course, the dropping of the atomic weapons and all that. So Harry Truman goes from being, you know, kind of a, you know, not a very popular, uh, you know, politician and all that, maybe a year before or so, 
to being arguably the most important man in the world with dealing with the end of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War later on. So he's a very important role to play in the, you know, some of the politics and the other things going on within the country. Everybody okay on the home front, guys? Rationing all that? Oh, one thing I forgot to mention real quick, I apologize. Uh, but the government is also pushing like crazy a war bonds. And I think we've mentioned those kind of off and on a little bit or once in a while. Um, anybody know what war bonds are? It's kind of like these pieces of paper. It's almost like an IOU that you get from the government. Right? So it's kind of like the people lending money. They buy these bonds and then the government's going to use that money, right, to pay for the war. And then you get that paid back later on, right? And of course, now when you get it paid back, right, why does anybody lend money or buy something like that? You get paid with what? Interest. Yeah, absolutely, with interest. So again, war bonds, massive part of the war effort as well. All right, guys, so this visual here shows one of the uglier parts of World War II. So, you know, basically after, and also one of the uglier parts of the FDR administration in general, but I think by now you hopefully realize that especially times of warfare in U.S. history, you know, uh, a lot of the sometimes the bigotry, right, the uh, targeted racism, scapegoating, all that, you know, becomes very prominent in U.S. society, to say the least. So not too long after the attacks at uh, Pearl Harbor, right, in late uh, 1941, uh, in the next year, 1942, FDR issues Executive Order 9066. And what that executive order calls for is federal authorities to basically round up uh, Japanese Americans, so Americans of Japanese ancestry, and to relocate them to detention centers or internment camps all over the U.S. And most of them are in the western portion of the U.S., right? Because a lot of Asian immigrants and all that settle along the west coast in the west. So, you know, again, it's not fair necessarily to probably call them concentration camps, stuff like that, right? But... You know, these people like are literally disturbed from their everyday lives, right? Taken away from their homes, forced to live in these jails, basically in the middle of nowhere until the war is over. And of course, all because of who they are, right? And the fact that we're at war with, um, you know, uh, the, the Japanese empire. So again, it highlights the paranoia, the fear, you know, the injustice as well, right? Uh, these people, you know, a lot of their rights being violated in the process. So it's uh, you know, important to kind of shed light on that. And a lot of students, you know, when they hear about this, they always say, well, why didn't they fight back and do this and do that? They did, especially through the courts. Um, there's a very famous Supreme Court case called Korematsu versus the U.S. from 1945, in which basically the lawsuit um, was, you know, saying that, you know, this is violating all, you know, all our rights, right? Violating our constitutional rights. But in that case, 1945, the Supreme Court sided with the government because it was extreme measures in a time of war, the government did have the right to do this and stuff. So, you know, an ugly example of, uh, you know, the conditions of that time period and one that sometimes, you know, a lot of people don't know about and stuff. So, uh, you know, pretty fascinating. Okay, does anybody have any questions or anything on these Japanese uh, internment camps? You know, the sad thing is some of these people, you know, spoke better English than they ever would Japanese. I've been there maybe for multiple generations or at least one generation. Um, you know, so, and again, we're talking, not, it's not like very little numbers, like I think it's over 100,000 total are detained by the end of World War II. Okay. All right, guys, so how do the Allies uh, achieve victory? Um, this is just a really famous picture from the meeting at Yalta, or what's called the Yalta Conference in 1945. I think it's taken in February of 1945. 
and of course shows the, what's called sometimes the big three. Winston Churchill, right, Prime Minister of the UK, FDR, right, President of the United States. He's in really bad uh, shape here health-wise. Um, this is February. Uh, he passes away in April of 45. And then Joseph Stalin, uh, kind of at the height of his power and all that, right, for the Soviet Union. But um, we'll come back to this and kind of what's discussed here, here in a moment. Now, again, the key thing that leads up to victory is, like I told you, the victory at Stalingrad from the Soviets. And then fast forward, you know, a year uh, and change later when the Americans and the British open up that Western Front with the D-Day deployment, right, on June 6, 1944. And if you've ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, right, that's what they show in the first 15 minutes or so. An extremely costly day, right? Uh, I think that day alone, something close to 7,000 Americans dead trying to take those beaches in uh, northern France. But eventually, within a few days, hundreds of thousands of troops will be in France and ready to, you know, start battling their way uh, in liberating France and working towards the German border. Uh, what happens is almost like too good because the plan is very complex. And again, there is a lot of good and bad that comes from it, but it is ultimately really successful. But the troops almost kind of outrun their supplies. So it takes a few months to re and to build those supply lines to get the army kind of supplied as they keep advancing through France. And then what happens basically is as the Americans and the British reach kind of the border with Germany in winter of 1944, the Germans launch kind of a last hurrah, a last counteroffensive that is known as the Battle of the Bulge. And I'll show all this to you in the map here in a moment. And the reason it's called the Battle of the Bulge is almost like an offensive line, right? Or like a line of people. So the Allies are kind of trying to defend right there the border of France and Germany. The Germans are trying to get one last chance to break through and to retake the land they lost after the D-Day invasion. And they make a bulge, right? It doesn't break the line but it makes a bulge. That's why it's called the Battle of the Bulge. And after that, and after uh, that is kind of settled or dealt with, you know, both sides, the Soviets from the east, the Americans and the British from the west, and eventually joined by the French as well, some Canadian forces too, start converging on Berlin, right? And the Soviets will be the first to get there. And that's, of course, when you have the suicide of uh, Hitler, right? Late April 45, and then, you know, the, the uh, capitulation or the surrender not too long after. Now, the war aims and these big three and at this conference, uh, basically, you know, in these last months of the war, and especially in 1945, discussions are already being held as far as what is Europe going to look like after the war. And the big concern has to do with the Soviets. And if we go back to the map here, you can hopefully understand why. Remember, the Soviets are going to eventually make it all the way over here to Berlin. So they're going to kind of conquer and storm through most of Eastern and Southern Europe, or a good chunk of Eastern and Southern Europe. And... Um, you know, because of the toll it's taken on the Soviet Union, you know, basically the big argument is the other allies want these countries to be restored, to be, you know, independent after World War II. The Soviets are kind of being resistant to that and saying, no, uh, they're going to be protectorates of the Soviet Union after the war. So a lot of ways the kind of, you know, the battle lines are being drawn here for the Cold War in the last, you know, months of World War II, really. So that's kind of one of the big things kind of going on or the different uh, sort of situation. All right, guys, uh, for Triumph and Tragedy in the Pacific. Um, so basically, uh, in the Pacific, uh, the U.S., the turning point there, I guess sort of the, you know, the, the version of Stalingrad for the Pacific and the fight against the Japanese, occurs in the summer of 1942 at a place called the Midway. I think there was a movie that came out a few years ago. I never I got a chance to see it. But uh, at Midway, a very large American naval force clashes with a uh, pretty large Japanese force, 
And in the outcome of that three-day battle in early June of 42, um, the Japanese lose, uh, I think, something like half. It might have been a little bit more of their aircraft carriers. It was one of the biggest vessels that a Navy has. And after that, almost the same way like it happened with the Germans, the Japanese kind of lose their offensive capability. So they're just kind of reeling and backing up and playing defense more than anything. And here in a little bit, when I walk you through the map of what happens after, I'll explain kind of the key strategy for the Americans and how they achieve victory in that part of the world as well. Anybody have any questions over this stuff? D-Day, the perspectives here. And so remember Churchill from England, right? Of course, FDR, and then Joseph Stalin, right, for uh, the Soviet Union. All righty. All right, guys, I include these maps just to kind of uh, be sure to kind of walk you through it. I mean, I talked about a good a chunk of this. So, you know, here it kind of shows you how everything played out eventually. This is, again, that turning point, that key victory for the Soviets, right, at Stalingrad. Again, over a million casualties, just crazy, crazy numbers. And again, after this is when slowly but surely the push uh, happens into uh, to Berlin, right, to the capital of the German Empire. Again, on this side, right, here's the D-Day invasion. And then the eventual, here's the Battle of the Bulge I was talking about in the winter of 44 and into 45. And then the last push, right, to get to Germany and to, uh, you know, get there. But again, fighting is ferocious throughout, um, even at the end. I mean, Berlin, urban warfare, you know, like uh, has rarely been seen, you know, door to door. The Soviets, you know, bombarding the heck out of the city. Uh, both Britain and America firebombing German cities like crazy. Uh, there's a famous city called Dresden, where it's believed at least six. All right, guys, sorry, back at it. No questions on this one? Everybody's okay? All right. All right, guys, so this one shows the results of the election of 1944. So this is the one I was telling you where, again, Truman is the uh, kind of running mate to Roosevelt. Again, this is the last victory Roosevelt has. This is where I was telling you where, again, he wins the election in November, is inaugurated right in January, but again, only lives up to April of uh, 45. So that'll be when he passes away and Truman will take over and it will be up to Truman to kind of finish off the war, right? So it's Truman that'll deal with, you know, the beginning of the Cold War, the atomic bomb situation. And, uh, you know, to give you an idea of how secret that uh, project was, right, the Manhattan Project and the atomic weapons, is the story goes that even uh, Truman, who was the VP, right, who was vice president, had no knowledge of the Manhattan Project until he was in, or sworn in as president, right, upon the death of FDR. So it shows you how uh, tight-lipped that whole situation, that whole project was and stuff. All right, guys, so this shows you the Pacific Theater now. So here again, the attack of Pearl Harbor, right, late 1941. This is that major turning point I was describing at Midway uh, in, again, early June of 42. And then what uh, ensues from there is what's called a two-pronged attack led by two men in particular. One is uh, Douglas MacArthur, and the other from the south is an admiral named Chester Nimitz. Pretty famous admiral. He's actually from Texas. He's uh, born and raised in the uh, kind of hill country area. But uh, they institute a campaign against the Japanese that goes down in history and is called island hopping. And uh, island hopping literally because, you know, a lot of this territory is made up of hundreds, if not thousands of islands. And the idea for the American military is, you know, hey, if we stay and we try to conquer every single little itty bitty island in the Pacific, we're never going to finish this war, right? This war will never end. It'll just keep dragging on and on and on. So the idea with island hopping was to kind of prioritize targets, specifically those with value, uh, things like airfields, big ports. Uh, that was the goal. 
And uh, they do this job very, very well. I mean, it is ferocious fighting. It is, uh, you know, really, really uh, uh, costly. But eventually, uh, the U.S. is able to make it, you know, pretty much right here on the precipice of the home islands of, of Japan. And uh, it's also really different, like the type of fighting to some extent. Um, does anybody know what's a little bit different about Japanese culture, especially like in war and warfare compared to uh, like Europeans and stuff? If you think of like samurai and stuff, anybody remember? What does a samurai kind of like do or what is their belief about like defeat and stuff like that? Anybody remember? Or maybe from movies, whatever. Not so much. Y'all are still here, right? <laughs> Anybody know? Who do samurais believe, like in warfare and stuff like that? It's, it's like, like Power Rangers. Sorry, say again? Like the Power Rangers? Well, what do you mean? What about them, though? Because you're talking about samurais? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that what they are? The Power Rangers? Are they? Samurai? I don't know. I don't know enough about the Power Rangers to kind of comment. It's more about like the idea of like losing in battle. Like, you know, in European nations, for instance, like, you know, like a lot of times, you know, you're, you're fighting in European warfare and you know you're going to lose. The other side will just straight up surrender. But but things are a little bit different for the Japanese. Um, suicide. Yeah, seppuku, right? Ritual suicide. Like in a way, I don't know if you all have ever seen like the movie 300 uh, they, they kind of allude to it there a little bit. I know that's not Asian and that's not Japanese. But, uh, you know, the idea is like a glorious death in battle is like a good death, right? Um, and this, there's a lot of stuff here like about, uh, you know, saving face and the idea of like bringing shame upon Japan, right? If you're defeated, like it's better to commit suicide and have a good warrior's death than face like that sort of shame and stuff like that. So, you know, it's just kind of a different kind of animal over here, a different, you know, sort of fighting that takes place in the Pacific. Uh, to give you an example, I think Okinawa, um, I think it's defended by something like 20,000 Japanese. And in the span of time that the U.S., you know, takes it over and bombards the heck out of the island, I think only like 100 or so surrender. The rest either die in battle or commit suicide before uh, they can be taken by American forces. So, again, just a little bit different. And story goes is, you know, as the lead up happens and, you know, at the end, we are bombing Japanese cities all over the place. You know, of course, we know and hear a lot about Nagasaki and Hiroshima, right? The two atomic weapons. But probably more people are killed in Tokyo and the surrounding areas in just regular firebombing that was pretty standard in the last, you know, few months of the war. Because the U.S., you know, at this point, and along with Russia or the Soviet Union, is debating and planning a, an amphibious assault on the Japanese home islands. But uh, again, once the U.S. Uh, has the prototypes ready, right, they decide to, uh, to use the atomic weapons to try to kind of coerce and show the Japanese that, hey, if this doesn't end, you know, um, your, your nation's just going to be bombed. I mean, they already are bombed like crazy, right, and all that, but even more so. So this is, again, ultimately how the war ends. There's also a lot of aspects to talk about with the development of the, the nuclear weapon and it being used. You know, a lot of people debate of why would, did it need to be used twice, you know, the story goes is that, and the word debates, and, and Truman tried to take a pretty methodical approach. Like he had all his advisors kind of um, sort of write to him and try to convince him of, yes, use the weapon. No, don't use the weapon. You know, but ultimately it was his decision. 
And so, you know, the story goes is after Hiroshima, the, they were, you know, they gave them three days. And if they, that doesn't surrender, right, within those three days, they use the other one on the other city of Nagasaki. So, again, you know, the, the, the kind of story goes that in Truman's mind, the cost of an amphibious invasion or a land invasion would have been incredibly higher for the American troops and all that. And that's unacceptable. Uh, a lot of people also view the role of the Soviets because the Soviets are put in position and are basically on standby in Korea to assist with an invasion of Japan. And, you know, a lot of people believe that Truman did not want that to happen. And, uh, you know, maybe also because the Soviets had no idea we had the atomic weapons as well to kind of act as a, you know, maybe like a warning or just like a showing of like, hey, just so you know, right, we have these weapons at our disposal. This is what we've been sort of working on throughout the war. So, of course, a very, very loud statement made and very, very powerful. Um, if you ever want to read a really good book. Damn, I'm going to just another one. Jesus, sorry. All right. But anyways, that book is called Hiroshima by John Hershey. Really recommend if you ever uh, have a chance. Really short, too. Like 60, 70 pages. All right, guys, final slide. Sorry, I know it took a while to get here. All right, so, you know, in, in a nutshell, there's, you know, the, the legacy of World War II cannot really be understated. You know, from the economy, from the ending of the Great Depression, to literally rewriting and reforming the boundaries and, uh, you know, around the world. Um, it's massive. Um, you know, and so here I'm kind of more focusing on the domestic changes, right, for the nation of the United States. But, you know, for the world, you know, when you talk about things like the Holocaust, when you talk about technology, radar, nuclear technology, rocket technology, computer technology, mobile communication technology, like the list can kind of go on and on. And it's, it's uh, pretty crazy. But as far as the U.S. is concerned, right, the first thing is the U.S. finds itself in a position now of uh, basically being a superpower uh, right after World War II. And we've seen this happen, right, especially after 1900 of the U.S. You know, economy being bigger and bigger and bigger, and then the military also kind of following suit. And in a way, both world wars, you know, what they've done is reduced the power of countries like England and Germany and France, and now propelled the U.S. Uh, to a position of leadership. Now, of course, it's also propelled the Soviet Union, but it's a little bit different because the Soviet Union does have a lot of territory. They do have a very strong army, but they don't quite have the economic power that the U.S. does. You know, this is why in the Cold War we get that term first world, second world, third world and stuff. We'll, you know, we'll expand upon that kind of down the road. But again, um, the U.S. now put in a new kind of leadership role, right? So you know, whether it be founding the U.N. or helping establish the U.N. to now, right, where we, we're expected to react to events all over the world. You know, the U.S. is in that kind of leadership spot. Uh, recovery and prosperity, so ending the Great Depression, right, reducing unemployment to pre-war levels, and the great thing is, you know, this um, positive and this, these good times last for the better part of a decade and throughout the 1950s. You know, when you see those old sitcoms, uh, I don't know if anybody of you guys like saw WandaVision or any of that, but like that idea of like, you know, the little piece of the American dream and everybody has a house and, you know, the nosy neighbors, all that. A lot of that arises from the late 40s and 50s where this became kind of attainable, right? The middle class grew. Uh, people now hacks, had access to things like the GI Bill. Anybody know what the GI Bill is? What does it help veterans with and stuff? Anyone know? Maybe your family or someone you know, GI Bill. It's the reason why a lot of people join the Army and stuff, right? Or Navy or whatever. Anyone know GI Bill? It helps uh, veterans pay for college. You almost get it you know, completely covered and stuff. 
long as you're in good standing. So all these things are going to do a lot to really swell up the middle class, create a lot of security with jobs and other things. And, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, in that environment, right, have babies, they have home, they have private property. So we see a big baby boom in the 50s and 60s. And this would be like my parents, maybe like your grandparents, uh, probably considered part of the baby boomers. I always get the generations kind of mixed up as we get, you know, because it's like baby boomers. And I think it's, yeah, I think it's with Gen X, I think, follows. And then, you know, the millennials are somewhere in there. And there's Gen Y. There's just a bunch of them. But uh, baby boomers, you know, uh, one of the more standout ones from the aftermath of the war. Uh, for the Sun Belt, so as I think they allude to a little bit, the growth of cities, especially in the southern part of the U.S., is something that happens with all the war industries. Cities like Phoenix, Atlanta, Houston, Dallas see really big upticks in population. Uh, and this will increase as we get through the 70s, especially with air condition coming about and uh, that stuff where, again, you know, the south is comfortable in the winter, sometimes, you know, unbearable in the summer, but because of AC that's, you know, about to kind of be invented and implemented, more and more people move. Uh, so we also see in general diversity, and again, this is good and bad with, you know, more Hispanics moving to different parts of the nation, uh, African-Americans as well. So again, these are the kind of some of the changes going on in society in general. Just make sure. Yeah. All right, guys, does anybody have any questions? Can doesn't matter what topic or anything, but anything else about World War II I could assist with or anything you might be fascinated by? And again, you know, this is kind of the crazy thing about World War II is there's so many facets of this. I mean, there's basically whole campaigns that happen in China you know, we don't necessarily have time to talk about and, you know, didn't involve American forces per se, but still really important. I always like to use the analogy of kind of like these other smaller stories that are so captivating. Have any of you guys ever heard of a boat called the USS Indianapolis? Anybody ever heard of that ship or that boat? It's from World War II. No one's ever heard of it. Uh, Y'all ever seen the movie Jaws? One of my personal favorites, right? Really old, 1977. Made me really scared to get into go to the beach until I was like 12. Nobody's ever seen Jaws? Man. I think I've seen the new ones. The not new the ones, old. not the old ones. I forget how many they made. I think they made like four or five. But the first two are the best, and part one is like amazing. Anyway, uh, but there's a character in there uh, that explains a real situation that happened in World War II. Uh, so this battleship called the USS Indianapolis, it's a little bit eerie too because that boat had been involved in the transportation of one of the atomic weapons that was used. I always get confused which one. And upon its return, or I forgot where it was going, I believe somewhere here in the South Pacific, uh, the boat, the USS Indianapolis, was torpedoed by a, a Japanese submarine. And the crew was forced to evacuate, right, to abandon ship. So they took to rafts, and many had to take to just drifting in the water, right, and floating on their uh, life preservers and things like that. Well, um, you know, it's crazy to think about, but I forgot how long they had to wait for rescue, but I think it may have been a few days. And, um, you know, the whole reason, anybody want to guess what happened to a lot of those men and why it would be in the movie Jaws? They got eaten by sharks? Yeah, they got attacked by tiger sharks. Uh, because, again, it was, it was at least, like, uh, I think over 24 hours that they had to be in the water and... Uh, you know, um, some of them were wounded, right? All that stuff. So it kind of became like a feeding frenzy. And, uh, you know, crazy. Like, could you imagine these poor soldiers, right? These poor uh, sailors and all that. I mean, they have enough to be scared of with, you know, fighting the Japanese, all this stuff. And, I mean, you know, some of them are killed in this weird 
uh, you know, situation with the USS Indianapolis, even by sharks and stuff. Kind of wild. But, you know, that's just one of many, many stories. All right, guys, uh, just coming up, got a few videos for you. Let me pause 